0: Hi there, I'm Sue Alvis from the blog Stories of an Unschooling Family. Welcome to my podcast. This is episode 140. And today I have lots of things that I want to talk about, including our fears, pushing kids to use their talents. Our spouses or partners, what if they don't want to unschool? And the trust between us. Yes, do we need to build up trust between spouses or between partners? Is that important if we are going to unschool? And then somebody asked a question about my husband, Andy. He's a school teacher. How does that fit in with unschooling? While I'm talking about all those things, I'm going to be sharing a lot of family news along the way. So I didn't make a podcast last week. I wonder if you noticed. Yes, I'm a week late. I did intend to record an episode. I actually had it all planned out. I was going to record a story for my son, Thomas. It was his birthday last Friday. And then the next day, Saturday, it was his death day. If you've been listening to my podcast or reading my blog for a while, you will know all about Thomas. He's our sixth child. Yes, he fits into the family, just above Sophie, who is our 17-year-old. We knew during pregnancy that Thomas didn't have much chance of living after birth, but of course we hoped. For those five or six months after we found out that there was a problem with Thomas, yes, we hoped enormously. We didn't want to give in and start thinking about him being born and then dying and then having to bury him. I don't think we could have got through the pregnancy if we had given up hope. And we even hoped after he was born and put on a life support system. But no, it wasn't to be. And Thomas died after twenty-eight and a half hours of life. And of course, we were remembering all this last week. So I guess my mood was pretty low for a few days. It's funny how our hearts know what time of year it is. Our hearts always remember before our heads. At this time of the year, I can find myself feeling a bit down and not understanding why, and then when I think about things, I think, oh yes, Thomas's birthday is coming up. I've just been putting it to the back of my mind. Of course, we celebrate his birthday. We're glad that we have Thomas as part of our family, but still, all those very sorrowful memories come flooding back. It's almost as if it all happened yesterday. I was thinking about time. Our perception of time, at certain times of the year, all those years between Thomas's death and the present day, they feel like they have been compressed. It's as if I've gone to a video editor, taken the video of all those years, and then highlighted them and compressed them into just a few days. So last week, I didn't really feel like recording a podcast, even though I did want to do something in honor of Thomas's birthday and death day. I thought about it, and it just seemed like it would take too much energy. I just couldn't face it. But here I am a week later, and if I've got time at the end of this podcast, I would like to share one of my Thomas stories. I have written a lot of stories about Thomas. He really is part of our family. Oh, quite some time ago, a few years ago, I actually assembled some of these stories into a book, which was published. But I've written a lot more stories since then. So I would like to go back and redo that book, add the new stories in, do some more editing, release the book maybe under a new name. So that's one of my future projects. I can't do it at the moment because of course I'm trying to finish my unschooling book. So I guess I should talk about that next. How am I going? Well having a deadline does give me a focus and I'm still hoping to finish the book by January so that my daughter Imogen can help me format it and get it published. But the last week I haven't written a single word That worries me to some extent because I haven't got a lot of time to my deadline, but I understand it as well. I've had to take a little bit of time out, deal with other things that have been going on in my life, like remembering Thomas. It's been a week of ups and downs, a lot of joy, a lot of sorrow, and a lot of excitement thrown in. Perhaps I shall talk about the exciting things next. Well, the excitement started today. Do you remember how I told you that Pamela Ricchia of the Exploring Unschooling podcast, has she interviewed me for one of her episodes? Well, that episode is live. Episode 150 of the Exploring Unschooling podcast is now available to listen to Pam called it Stories of an Unschooling Family, Sue Elvis. I was wondering what she was going to call it, and I think that title is very appropriate, don't you? Now, I haven't listened to the episode myself. A couple of people have stopped by and said that they enjoyed listening to it, but I haven't got brave enough yet to actually listen. Did I get my words all in a muddle? Did I make much sense? Did I mess up one of Pam's episodes? Well, I hope not. I am sure many of you already subscribe to Pam's podcast, but if you don't, I will leave a link to my episode in the show notes. Perhaps you can listen and then let us know what you think. Did I do okay? Or perhaps I should stay away from interviews in the future. So there was some excitement, but there was another event this week, which was very exciting. And that happened last Sunday. Last Sunday, two of my girls, Sophie, who is 17, and Gemma Rose, who is 14, they ran in a 10-kilometer fun run. We traveled up to the next city and joined hundreds of other people, and they ran. This is the second time that they have entered this particular race. Last year, both girls entered the 5k race, but they raised the bar they trained for the 10km event. So how did they do? Well, both girls ran good times, their best times ever. And when we look at their times for the 5k event last year, if they had run two 5k events at last year's pace, Ah, uh, they would have taken longer to run the 10k. I hope that's not too muddled up. I guess they did um, the 10k in less time than running two 5k events and they were really pleased with last year's times so you can imagine that they were very very pleased with this year's times. Gemma Rose was second in her age group 12 to 15 year olds and Sophie came first in her age group which I think was the 16 to the 18 year olds. So they both came home with a medal but the medals weren't the most important part of the day. It was the joy. The joy that came from working very hard at something and then seeing all that work pay off But not even that, I think that even if they hadn't run very good times, that they still would have felt very joyful because they were both doing something that they enjoy enormously. And I felt joyful watching them. Yes, they came alive. And I think that's the way it is when all children are involved with their passions. Children's interests and passions, they are part of them. And when they're involved with them, yes, there is something extra that shines about our children. Their interests and passions push them into their happy zone. And I was thinking about how our kids should be happy. They should be allowed to spend lots of time doing what they feel they're interested in, what they're good at, what gives them joy. Unless, of course, we don't believe that children should be happy. And I think I've talked about this before. And it sounds really silly, doesn't it, that we question whether children should be allowed to be happy. But so many people, I feel, don't believe that you see so many comments on things like YouTube videos Ones that have been made by unschoolers and people come along and say, hey, kids shouldn't be allowed to stay home and do what they like. They should be forced to go to school. It's too bad if they don't enjoy school. It's something they've got to do. Everybody has to do difficult things. It's good for you. Well, my argument to that one is, Just because kids do things that they enjoy doesn't mean they're not doing difficult things. They work really hard at their passions, developing their talents. Yes, and I think that when kids do that, those talents and passions get developed and who knows where they will lead. They will share them with other people. Maybe they are part of their mission, the mission that they have to fulfill in this world. So no, we shouldn't prevent kids from uh, doing things that they enjoy. We shouldn't prevent them from being happy. There's a couple of other things that I want to talk about associated with that race. A couple of other unschooling thoughts. And the first one is pushing kids to use their talents. Because, of course, kids might want to use their talents and parents might object, saying, you've got to do this or that or the other before you are allowed to go and do what you want to do. Of course, this doesn't happen with unschooling. And my daughter Sophie has already commented a few times how she is glad that she can do the things that she enjoys because she has observed her friends Being told that they have to do their schoolwork first before they can do the things that are important to them. But pushing kids, yes, sometimes kids don't show any interest in using their talents. Perhaps we see that they are good at something or they could be good at something and we make some suggestions. How about you do this? How about you do that? And they're just not interested. And perhaps we feel that they are wasting their talents. I read a little bit about this in my last unschooling newsletter. I quoted something about how we don't have to push our kids. If they have a talent for something, it will appear without our pushing. But that doesn't stop us worrying. Yes, we sometimes think... If we don't push our kids to use their talents, perhaps the optimum time for using those talents will pass. And maybe there are some talents that need developing early. But the more we push, the more we push our kids away from what we want them to do. Anyway, back to the race. Why am I talking about pushing kids? Well, we have been running as a family now for seven years. At first, it was just my husband and my older children, and then I joined them, and then when my younger children saw that I was running, they wanted to join in too. I wasn't a very good runner in those days, and I almost gave up on the very first day. Oh my, it was agony trying to run. I couldn't even run one length of the football field, and I remember coming home, huffing and puffing and red in the face. My heart was beating so fast I thought it was going to burst out of my chest. And I declared that I was never going to do that ever again. I came home through the door, found my bed, flung myself upon it, and told myself that I had been stupid. Yes, that had been one of my sillier ideas. But then my younger children, Sophie and Gemma Rose, appeared and they came in and they said, Mom, we've just heard that you went running. Oh, that's wonderful. We're so proud of you. Can we come running with you tomorrow? And of course, I couldn't tell them that I had already given up running. I had to get up the next day, go out again, and face that torture once more. Well, not once more. I had to face it many, many times before I actually became a runner. I was going to say a fluent runner, sort of reminded me of learning to read, You go in stops and starts, and then one day you just take off. Yes, I became a fluent runner. But also, all my girls became fluent runners as well. And it didn't take us very long to see that Gemma Rose was really enjoying her running. She has a talent for running. And over the last few years, we've said to her, perhaps you would like to enter a race. And every time she shook her head and said, no, no, I'm not interested. And we've had to back off. And that's been really hard because we've been thinking, if only she entered a race, she might find out that she really enjoys competing with other people. And then last year, we went to buy new running shoes. I was in the shop with all the girls. And on the wall of the shop was a poster advertising a fun run. I looked at the poster, I looked at Gemma Rose, and I very tentatively said to her, would you like to enter that race? And then I prepared myself for her to shake her head and say, no, thank you, mum. But she didn't. She said, yes, I think I would like to do that. And Sophie said she would join Gemma Rose. And I was most surprised. Yes, my jaw dropped, but it was good. I think there was only a few weeks between the time that we bought those running shoes and the race. The girls did a bit of extra training. They went and competed. They did well. They came home with big grins on their faces, and they said they were going to enter more races. They entered another one in April, and as I just said, they returned this year for the same race, the first one that they ever did. And they were really anticipating it, knowing what it was all about this year, going back somewhere familiar, being one of the old people, people that had done the race before, they knew the track, they knew the routine. And this year, they had the added satisfaction of actually placing in the winners and getting their medals. Sophie didn't have a very good run up to the race. And this leads to my next unschooling thought. I almost encouraged Sophie not to run in the 10-kilometer race. I was afraid that she might fail. So why did I think this? Well, about six weeks ago, Sophie had her wisdom teeth removed by an oral surgeon. Yes, it was day surgery. Having wisdom teeth removed doesn't sound like a big deal, does it? But, oh, she was under the weather for about two or three weeks. She couldn't eat properly. She was in a lot of pain. She ended up with a gum infection. And then she had three courses of antibiotics and they made her feel sick. Also, she has a foot problem. She wears orthotics and her orthotics need adjusting. But she wasn't prepared to go back to the podiatrist and get those orthotics adjusted until after the race, because she was afraid she'd be told that she couldn't run. So she decided just to put up with the pain. And then, like me, Sophie doesn't sleep well. Yes, she didn't run much in the lead up to the race. Actually, Sophie didn't enter the race, I think, until about three days before it happened. And when she went online to enter the race, I said to her, do you think that it would be more sensible to run the 5K race? I was thinking that she needed more time to work on her fitness. Perhaps it would be sensible to hold back. What if she failed? What if she couldn't last the distance? Well, Sophie said to me, no, mom, I'm going to do the 10K. So I backed off. And I'm so glad I did. Actually, I wish I hadn't even suggested that she enter the 5K race. I wish that I had trusted her judgment completely. But at least I didn't turn her off. And look what she did. Yes, she ran her best time ever. Yes, and the joy, the joy that just oozed from her as she crossed the line, crossed the finishing line. She came across that line and then before I could get to her, I saw that she had sunk onto the ground. I thought something was wrong. It did take her quite a few minutes to recover. She could hardly speak. And she said to me, Mum, I just can't believe I did it. She said, I looked at my time at the 5k mark and I thought, I'm going too fast. I'll never get to the end. And she said, I did it, Mum, I did it. But she had to sit still a while to recover because she had really pushed herself. And this takes me onto the thought that a lot of people think that unschooling kids are lazy. I guess we're back to that thought that unschooling kids don't want to do difficult things. They only want to do things that they want to do and they'll choose the easy path. But that's not true at all. If we don't overload kids With our challenges, we don't keep setting them goals that we think are important. They will take up their own challenges. They will work hard. And yes, they will work hard at something. They will push through all the problems. They also do this with things they don't enjoy, like chores and helping other people. But that's another story for another day. I want to get back. To the topic of fear. Why do we fear so much? Why don't we want our kids to go out there and take risks? And I wonder if it's because we're not used to taking risks. Maybe we remember things that people said to us in our past. Maybe when we were younger, we tried things and maybe we didn't always succeed. And maybe people weren't always kind about it. What happened there? You're going to have to do better next time. I wonder why people say such things. Maybe they think that by pushing us, by not telling us that we did a good job, that we will go out there and strive for trying to achieve our goal. If they tell us we did a good job anyway, perhaps they'll think that, yes, there's no incentive to try harder. But what happens is that... In the end, after hearing that we weren't good enough, that we failed, we give up. We no longer want to try. We no longer want to go out there, take a few risks, and see where they lead. So maybe we fear for our children. We don't want people to say unkind things about them. I thought you could run. I thought that you were going to get a good place. You didn't even finish the race. People, of course, might not say it, but they might think it. What will people think of our kids? What will they think of us? Yes, perhaps we want to protect our kids. And also, we want to protect ourselves. Worrying about failing can be a real problem with adults. I try not to squash my children's ambitions. I try and get behind whatever they want to do. But for myself, it's not so easy. But of course, we never learn unless we're willing to take risks. And our children need to see us doing this. And when we do take risks and we learn, oh my, what satisfaction we get. Yes, from overcoming a fear. It gives us new skills, new powers. The possibilities open up. Yes, we did it. We conquered a fear. Well, next year, I'm going to be brave. Brave like my kids. I'm going to enter the race that my girls just did. I'm not going to run 10K, I'm going to do the 5K run, though maybe as the months go by I might challenge myself more and more, who knows, maybe I will end up doing the 10K. But that's not what I've agreed to do at the moment. I've told the girls that I'm willing to run 5K. Now I already know I can do that because I do a number of 5K runs every week. But I'm not going to win. I know that I don't run a fast enough pace. Now, I really shouldn't say that, should I? I know I'm not going to win. Well, being realistic, there's a lot of younger people than me. But maybe I have a chance at my age category. We really shouldn't say we can't do something before we actually try. So who knows where my courage will lead. Regardless of times, I am sure that it's going to be a fabulous experience. Now, because I didn't record an episode last week, I went on Instagram and posted a photo and explained that my episode would be late and that I was hoping to catch up. Well, I didn't actually catch up. But a few people stopped by and we exchanged comments. And I did ask if anybody had any questions, I would be willing to answer them in a podcast. There were a few questions and I'm just going to tackle one or two today. I won't answer them all because I've already spoken for quite a while today already. And I've still got a couple of things that I want to share with you. But one of the questions was about my school teacher husband. I talked about Andy in Pam's podcast, episode 150, the one that went live today. I was talking about how he went back to university to get his Master's of Teaching as a mature age student. That was about eight years ago. There were a lot of unschooling ideas associated with that story. There are a couple of different ideas that I want to talk about today. The first one is, does Andy's two roles, his role as an unschooling father and his role as a school teacher, do they ever come in conflict? How can an unschooling father be a school teacher? And the answer to that one is that not everybody will homeschool. Certainly not everyone will unschool. Teachers will always be needed. Andy is a good teacher. He cares about his students. I am sure he is affecting his students' lives in big ways. Yes, he has to teach within a system, but he can pass on his love of learning to his students within that framework. He can also show his kids that he cares about them. He can take a lot of time talking to them, making them feel that they are valuable, finding out about their interests, finding out what's important to them, encouraging them, doing all the sorts of things that we do with our own children. Yes, of course, he's got to plan lessons and there is the usual amount of testing, which isn't a great deal for primary school students. But he can share good books and and he can make his lessons interesting and engaging. And I think that is critical for school teachers. Andy and I often talk about education, how kids learn. And I have written a few blog posts, and I have spoken about this before, about how we can't force kids to learn. Learning is something that has to be active. We can't force knowledge into children. Of course, we can give them incentive to memorize things. We can bribe them, we can punish them, we can use shame to get them to cooperate with us. And it can look like they are learning. But if they're not interested, they're going to let go of any knowledge that it isn't important to them as soon as they can. And Andy recognises this. So he goes out of his way to make sure that his lessons are relevant to his students, that he makes them interesting and engaging, that he draws his students in. I am sure that he has many frustrating moments. But he perseveres, he pushes through, he enjoys his job, his students are important to him. Maybe a time will come when he wants to move on from what he's doing. But for the moment, his role as schoolteacher and his role as unschooling father, they are not in conflict. They are two separate roles. Well, that's not quite true. He uses a lot of ideas, that we talk about in his role as school teacher and it's really quite amazing that he gets the girls to help him plan his lessons. My girls have quite a few technology skills and they're always making graphics for Andy or animations or sharing their knowledge about audio files, whatever it is that he wants to use to enhance his lessons. So in the evenings, We might find Andy sitting on the sofa, surrounded by a girl or a two, learning a new skill that they have picked up by themselves, that they're using as part of their interests, maybe, and they're teaching him how to use these skills, and then he's sharing them with his students. So I think that teaching is interesting for him at the moment, that he is learning still, that he does things like I do. He goes out there and tries to find new ways to pass on the things that he wants to share with his students. Just like I'm on the search for new ways to spread the unschooling message. Now, a question that's associated with that one is, was my husband always in favor of unschooling? And the answer to that one is that both of us didn't know that we were unschooling until we'd been doing it for quite some time. We got here in a very gradual way. If you go back a couple of podcast episodes ago, um, I think I was talking about that. But certainly there's a lot of information about our unschooling story on my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. Yes, we never sat down and said, Hey, have you heard about unschooling? This sounds great. Shall we unschool our kids? And I wonder, what would have happened if I'd done that? If I'd said to Andy, I've been reading about unschooling. This sounds like the perfect way to educate and bring up our kids. What do you think? Shall we do it? And to be quite honest, I don't think Andy would have had any objections. Maybe he wouldn't have understood what unschooling is all about. Because I imagine I would have done all the reading And I would have just been presenting him with some of the facts, an overall picture. And maybe it would have sounded good. But certainly, he wouldn't have known all the ins and outs. But I think he would still have said, hey, that sounds good. Yes, unschool. And why would he have done that? Well, he would have done that because he trusts me. Before we unschooled, well, we we started off as unschoolers anyway, And then we went loads of different ways, Charlotte Mason, classical curriculum, lots of different ways. And never, ever did my husband object to what we were doing. He trusts what I am doing with the girls. Of course, he joins in, but he's not here at home most days. And he doesn't ask me to give an account of what I'm doing with our children. Yes, he just trusts whatever we do. It wouldn't matter if we changed. He has utter confidence in everything that I do, just as I have utter confidence in everything he does with our children. And so this brings me to the topic of trust, how it is important not only for us to trust our children and for our children to be able to trust us, but for spouses or partners to trust each other. That relationship between us has to be very, very strong. And if we're not seeing eye to eye, perhaps we ought to spend more time listening to one another, discussing things, asking each other what we think about all sorts of things, building up that trust again. Sometimes it can be really hard to listen especially as something as important as unschooling. We might have read about it and think, yes, yes, this is what I want to do. Nothing else will satisfy me. We've got to unschool. And then maybe we sit down with our spouse and he isn't as enthusiastic as us. Now, I just said that my husband and I weren't in this position, but we've been in this position with other things, other issues. And I used to not want to listen to what he had to say. Not, I didn't want to listen to all the objections my husband might have had against some plan that I had, a big plan. One of those plans had just popped into my head. I think you know this story already if you've been listening to my podcast for a while. It was the time, oh, many years ago, when I wanted to go and live. On a farm, a fish farm, a hundred acre fish farm set in the middle of the bush. I thought that would be the perfect place to bring up our children. We could grow our own organic vegetables, live a free and wild lifestyle, yes, move away from town. And I wanted my husband to agree with me, and I didn't want to listen to all his objections. I was sure that nothing he said would convince me that this wasn't the right plan. I didn't want to see things from his point of view. Sometimes when we listen to each other, we can answer each other's concerns. and Maybe we'll also learn something. Because we're not always right. And maybe with unschooling, we think, yes, we are right. There isn't another way. But unschooling can be approached Gradually, as I've already spoken about, we don't have to dive in the deep end. We can let each other get used to the idea first. And perhaps we don't even have to talk about unschooling. Because sometimes I think that it would be more beneficial just to sit down and just talk about what we want for our children. We still do this, my husband and I. We talk about our hopes and our dreams for our kids. We also talk about the things that weren't so good in our childhoods, the things that we want to avoid for our children, things we don't want them to experience. And these are fruitful-type discussions because they can lead us towards unschooling. We might agree that we don't want to send our kids to school, for example, or we don't want them to go through the agonies of being forced to learn this, that, or the other, or whatever it is, And gradually by talking, we might get to unschooling without even mentioning the word. Because that word, unschooling, it can be very, very frightening to some people. It doesn't always have a very good image. It's hard to understand, and it can sound a little bit irresponsible. And When we talk about things and talk about what we really want for our children, we realize that unschooling can fit in very well with those hopes, those dreams, the principles that we want to live our lives by, all that type of thing, that unschooling does answer all those things. There was one more thing to do with schoolteacher husbands, and that was outings. The good thing about having a schoolteacher husband is that regularly, Andy is at home with us. He has a lot of holidays sprinkled throughout the year. Now a lot of people think that's pretty good, you know. Be a school teacher, you get lots of holidays. Well, I don't think most people realize how hard school teachers work. They work evenings, they work weekends, they even work during school holidays. But the good thing for us is that even if Andy does have to work, he is at home with us, and maybe we're all working together. And that's a wonderful atmosphere to know that everybody in the house is working away at things that they enjoy. But also there is time to enjoy each other's company, to go out for coffee and even to go on holidays and to have some family outings. And I tend to save the big outings for holidays so that Andy can join in with us. all over the place today, I hope that I've actually shared some thoughts that aren't too muddled. But while sharing those thoughts, I've also shared a lot of our news. And looking throughout my notes, I can see that there's just two more things, two things that have happened in the last week or so that I briefly want to mention. And the first one is the NaNoWriMo event in Sydney that I told you last time that my girls, Imogen and Sophie, were going to join in with. Yes, they travelled up to Sydney and met some of the other people who are writing novels during November, other NaNoWriMo writers, and that was a really good day for them. Everybody travelled from cafe to cafe, had a coffee, and did a word war at each place. A word war is where the timer is set for 10 or 15 minutes, and everybody writes as fast as they can. And the winner of the war is obviously the person who writes the most words. If a writer is struggling to get to their goal of 50,000 words, word wars can be a good incentive to write a few more words. They can push a writer's turtle on. Also, it sounds like you don't get much time to think. You're writing as quickly as possible. But actually, writing fast is good. When we slow down too much, we overthink it and we don't get going. We just let our fingers do the typing. The thoughts come fast. Sometimes we're surprised by what appears on our computer screens. So yes, the girls went to Sydney. They made some friends. They socialized. We were talking about socialization last week. Yes, my introverted girls got on a train, traveled to Sydney, spoke to other people. Yes, we can do it. They're actually doing it again this Sunday. They are traveling part way to Sydney where they'll join other NaNoWriMo writers. They will get on a train and everybody is going to write while they're on the train. The train will travel to a local town near us. Everybody will get out, visit a cafe or two, do some more writing, get back on the train. Most people will travel back to Sydney. My girls will get off part way. They will pick up the car again and drive home. Sophie and Imogen can't wait. Coming back from the last event, Sophie felt so inspired. Yes, getting together with other people who have a passion is wonderful. It really does spur you on. So my girls would recommend joining up with other writers if you want to write a novel. Don't do it alone. Join a NaNoWriMo event, a forum, a Facebook page. Yes, find people who share your passion and get writing. My last piece of news. I started this episode telling you about my son Thomas, and I'm going to finish with him. His birthday was last Friday, his death day was last Saturday. Usually, on Thomas's birthday, we go to the cemetery, we might take a picnic and yes have a birthday outing take some photos at the cemetery usually i take photos of whoever's home standing behind thomas's grave but this year on his birthday a couple of my girls weren't available sophie was working imogen was doing something else and i had the option of going to the cemetery with one or two girls i could have gone by myself But I chose not to go. I just thought that it would be too sad to take photos of so few people at the cemetery. I would be arranging a couple of girls behind Thomas's grave, taking the photos, and then looking back on them and thinking, hey, there's not many people left celebrating Thomas's birthday. And I know the day will come when... There will be nobody at home, and I will be going to the cemetery by myself, and I will possibly be taking photos with nobody standing behind the headstone. But not this year. This year, I decided I didn't want to face that, so we waited until Monday. Last Monday, four of my girls, my four at home girls, and I visited the cemetery to do the usual things clean up. Thomas's grave, replace the flowers in his flower ball, and take the birthday photos and then have a picnic. Two or three days late, but we got there and we've really enjoyed the day. The sun shone, my girls smiled, we remembered, we were thankful that we have Thomas. The love grows stronger and stronger each year. Yes, of course. There is the pain as well. But I think joy won out. And after we had taken the birthday photos, we decided this year not to have our picnic at the cemetery. We had a problem last year. While we were at the cemetery, uh, tidying up Thomas's grave, we noticed that there was an open grave and people started to arrive for a funeral. And yes, of course, we had to leave. It wasn't our day to take over the cemetery. It was somebody else's turn to have the cemetery to themselves. So we quietly left and we actually had a McDonald's lunch on the way home. Well, this year we had a simple lunch as well. We took a few things with us. We stopped at McDonald's as well for some chicken wraps and a couple of other things. And then we went to the Nature Reserve, which is on our way home between the cemetery and our home. If you have watched any of my daughter Imogen's music videos, you will be familiar with the nature reserve because we have used it as a music video location shoot a few times. There are a number of lovely areas in that nature reserve. And we found another one last Monday. After we'd had our picnic, sat at the picnic table and and enjoyed our food, Sophie and I wandered around to the weir. We had our cameras with us, of course, and we wanted to see if the water was actually flowing over the weir. We've had a little bit of rain recently. Not a lot, but we thought maybe we've had enough so that the river is flowing fast enough to actually spill over the weir and cause a waterfall. So we wandered around the corner. We followed the river a little way. And we came to the weir. Well, the water was spilling over the weir, but not in a waterfall, just in a couple of areas. But it was still nice to see that water flowing. And while we were at the weir, Sophie wandered a little bit off the track. She went behind the weir. She did a little bit of climbing. And then she said to me, Mom, come over here. Have a look at this. Wouldn't this make a wonderful place to film a music video? So I climbed up a couple of steps and over the top of the weir to where Sophie was. And yes, we got a totally different view of the area from behind the weir. And of course, I got excited as well. We'll have to make another music video, I said. Of course, that decision is up to Imogen. We can't make her make another music video But of course, we can make a suggestion. So when we went back to the picnic table where the other girls were still sitting, we said to Imogen, you'll have to come round to the weir. We have found a wonderful location. Perhaps we can all make another music video. Do you have a song? Do we have time? Can we do this together? So Imogen is thinking about another music video. She hasn't had a lot of time this year, nor has Sophie. They've both been working. Imogen published her novel in August. She's working on the sequel. So other things, yes, have come in the way of us making music videos. And I've really missed doing them. I think the other girls have as well. Getting up early together in the dark, going out, filming a music video as the sun rose. It always was a bit of an adventure. A big adventure, something we shared together. We all pooled our skills, shared what we're good at. It was always very exciting to see the video go up on YouTube. The only thing we haven't missed about it, we didn't miss getting up on the cold winter mornings and freezing, but that's one of the difficult things we did. And there was joy and satisfaction from doing that. It wasn't all bad. So I wonder if Imogen will record another song, whether Sophie will film another music video, whether I will get an opportunity to take more behind-the-scenes photos, whether Charlotte will film the -the behind-the-scenes video, whether Gemma Rose will do her bit interviewing everybody and adding a touch of her personality to everything we do. Yes, maybe. Quite a few people have asked recently whether Imogen will be making any more videos. So I hope that the feedback she's getting will encourage her to actually do that. Have I got time to share Thomas's story with you? I can't see the time from here, but I feel like I've been speaking for a long time. Maybe that's because I'm trying to catch up, not having made an episode last week. But I said in my introduction to this episode that I was going to share a story and I don't really want to go back and change my introduction. So I hope that it's okay if I keep on going and share this story with you. Maybe I also want to share this story because maybe I can move on from Thomas's birthday and death day after this episode. Maybe my mood will lift and things will be okay again. We'll be into a new season of the year. This story is called An Exquisite Gown of Love. From the title, you will know that it is a story about love, but not just the love we have for our son, but the love other people showed us, especially one person in particular. That person was a stranger, and she reached out to us with so much love. She made a tremendous difference to our lives. It's not always easy to reach out to people, especially when they are grieving. Maybe we feel we don't know what to say or that we will be imposing on somebody else's privacy. But yes, when we have the courage to do that, to put our own fears behind us, to think about the other person instead, to reach out, to help them, to show them love. Yes, it does make a difference. Anyway, on to the story. An exquisite gown of love. Our son Thomas was born. He died and he had to be buried. And I thought about what I wanted him to be wearing when we laid him in his coffin. I knew it had to be something special, something really beautiful. So I went shopping and in the one and only children's clothing boutique in town, I I found exactly what I wanted, an exquisite ivory baptismal gown. But would it fit our son? The owner of the shop appeared at my elbow, eager to help, and I told her I was worried the gown would be too big. She asked me how old our baby was, and I replied, one day old. And I might have stopped there, but I didn't. The words flowed out of my mouth. But he's dead. I want a gown to bury him in. The woman's eyes filled with tears. She reached out and enfolded me in a huge warm hug. If it doesn't fit, she said, I'll alter it for him myself. She took the gown from my hands and placed it on the shop counter and then said, you'll need a singlet. And how about some socks? And look at this shawl. It will look perfect over the gown. I followed the woman around the shop as she gathered various items of clothing. Of course, Thomas had to be dressed properly. Yes, he needed socks and underclothes, as well as the gown. Why hadn't I thought of them myself? It was a very expensive gown. The shawl cost a lot of money, too. But that didn't matter. This was the only outfit I was ever going to buy Thomas. I wanted our son to be dressed in the best. The saleswoman carefully wrapped the baptismal gown and the shawl in a piece of tissue paper. She slid them into a large paper bag, together with the smaller items of clothing, and then handed them to me. I had my money all ready to pay, but she shook her head. That's okay, she said. No charge. How could I walk out of the shop with all these beautiful clothes, without paying a cent? It didn't feel right. But how could I refuse such a gift of love? The woman must have understood how I was feeling because she proposed a nominal sum, which I gratefully accepted. Then she hugged me again before I left the shop. Several days later, we attended Thomas's viewing at the funeral home. I leaned down over his coffin and carefully picked him up. The ivory gown flowed over his little rag doll legs. A matching bonnet covered his fair hair. I adjusted the delicate shawl and held him close. He was beautiful, absolutely perfect, and so were his clothes. Did it really matter what Thomas was wearing when we buried him deep in the ground? I think about the rain seeping into his coffin. I think of his beautiful clothes decaying away. Was it all a waste? No. Those clothes were important. They were important to me, and they were important to Thomas. I think Thomas knows he was buried in an exquisite gown of love. Well, that's my story, and that's how I'm going to finish this episode. I will put some show notes on my blog, Stories of an Unschooling Family. There will be a link to the episode that I recorded with Pam Luricchia. I'll also put a link to my Instagram account if you would like to connect with me there, Stories of an Unschooling Family. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode. Listening to all my stories and my latest unschooling thoughts. I would like to thank you especially for listening to my Thomas story, sharing Thomas with me on this difficult week of the year. So I hope all is well with you. I hope you're enjoying unschooling. Please feel welcome to stop by my blog or my Instagram account to comment on anything that I've said today or just to say hello. It would be lovely to connect with you. So until next time, don't forget to trust respect and love unconditionally.